one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. It's been an extraordinary week. We have lots of data to talk about, both domestically in Ireland and also internationally. On both sides of the Atlantic, we've had some pretty extraordinary unemployment numbers from both Ireland and the United States, actually. Exchequer returns in Ireland. I know that you want to talk about that. And you've written an extraordinarily popular article for our Substack site about this with very wide readership and feedback. So please tell us a little bit about that and your subsequent thinking. Of course, there's so much else out there. One of the things that I'd like to discuss with you, actually, because I'm very interested in your views, is Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and the reaction that various people have had on all sides of that particular debate. Should she have gone? Should she have not? I've got my own views that I must admit change with each article that I've read, but I'd be very interested in your views. There's an enormous amount going on in the UK at the moment, both politically and economically. The Bank of England produced a report yesterday and a big rise in interest rates, the biggest rise for decades and decades. That really was scary. For anybody that lives in the UK, the economic outlook from a recession forecast, which is what the Bank of England is basically saying, it's a recession that's going to last at least through 2023. Inflation peaking in the mid-teens is their latest forecast. And every forecast they produce seems to be higher than the last one. And the forecast for unemployment, interest rates, energy prices, household gas and electricity bills certainly scared me to death. And I must say, if I was Liz Truss, who's going to be the next prime minister of the UK, the first thing I'd do would be an emergency budget to give loads of people lots of money. 
and then I'd call a general election because I wouldn't want to have an election at the end of this process. I'd rather have one at the beginning. If we get round to it, Jim, I'd like to talk about windfall energy taxes. It seems to be the topic du jour around the world. Different countries have very different approaches to that. I'd be very interested in your views about the politics of that, but also the proper economics, whether or not uh, we're approaching this question in the right way. So I'll hand back to you to start with uh, what were incredibly interesting exchequer returns and unemployment data for Ireland. Would I be right in summarizing Pascal Donoghue's problem, the Department of Finance's problem, is that they're drowning in cash? Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk. The exchequer returns here for the end of July were quite extraordinary. Uh, the exchequer ran a surplus of €5 billion Euro in the first seven months of the year. That's a turnaround of €10.7 since this time last year. In other words, in July last year, uh, the exchequer was running a deficit of €5.7 And that turnaround has been driven by two things partly by a reduction in COVID-related expenditure, but much, much more significantly has been an absolute surge in tax revenues over the last 12 months. Uh, Three tax categories, income tax, VAT and corporation tax account for over 86% of the total tax take. So what happens those three headings is incredibly important. And all three are still growing very, very strongly. Um, income tax up by 17.1%. That's $2.4 billion on a year ago. VAT up by 22.8%. That's $2.2 billion. And corporation tax um, just over $9 billion, which is up 51.2%. That's $3 billion higher than last year. And I remember when um, at the in January of this year, when we were talking about what was happening on the taxation side, um, I was very enthused by the fact that corporation tax revenues had exceeded 15 billion for the first time in our history. And it is likely this year, unless there is some major collapse, that the tax take could come in, the corporation tax take could come in anywhere between 18 and 20 billion, um, accounting for roughly. 23, 24% of uh, total tax revenues. Okay, and, and of course, the point the point is that normally corporation tax was sort of running between 12, 13, 14% of the total tax take. So it has grown extraordinarily as a driver of tax revenues here. But the net result of all of that is um, that, as I say, Pascal Donoghue is left with a surplus of $5 billion in the first seven months of the year. And obviously, we've no idea what's going to happen over the remainder of the year. But all of the indications are that the economy continues to grow strongly. Some signs of slowdown in construction particularly, but uh, the economy is still growing at a pretty decent pace. So the implication of that is that tax revenues should continue to do well here. And indeed, if you look at some of the tech results we're seeing in the United States, you know, they're pretty upbeat. And as we've discussed many times, every time we see a U.S. multinational reporting good results, um, it's a bonus for the Irish exchequer, given the nature of how those multinationals pay their tax. Um, the labor market, which drives income tax, still growing very, very strongly. And indeed, yesterday, the Central Statistics Office uh, published revised unemployment data. 
um, and also an updated unemployment number for July. And the unemployment rate in July down at 4.2% of the labour force. The last time we saw an unemployment rate down there was about 2006, you know, at the peak of the um, Irish economic cycle at that stage. 113,000 people unemployed, which is the lowest level we've seen in years. So all in all, um, and, and sorry, before I say on and all, I should say that one of the things about the exchequer returns that I was particularly interested in this time, you know, I normally analyze on the basis of the cumulative tax take year to date. But I was particularly curious about what July would look like to see if during the month of July there were any signs that rising interest rates, the pretty awful global environment were starting to impact on economic activity here and uh, or at least as economic activity is reflected in the tax take and uh, the good news is that there are no indications at all that the tax take is yet to be affected of course it's a little bit of a lagging indicator but still it, it is um, compelling i think that up to the end of july um, the economy is still motoring ahead and of course the challenge for pascal donahue and there was i was listening to five minutes for program on rt yesterday morning radio where the discussion was what would we do with the five billion um there was some somebody on I, I, I won't name people but there was somebody on from the sort of social wing of the country arguing that um all social welfare rates should be increased by 10 percent, and that's what we should do with the five billion um, and, and that really, and, and also, of course, that this money should be used to um, throw at the cost of living crisis. Um, I would have, you know, deep reservations about that sort of discussion. Um, number one, this is sort of a point in time. And we are, as we've discussed, and we will discuss a little bit later today, entering into incredibly uncertain um, economic waters globally. Um, given what's happening, the global economy, looking at, at what's happening on the interest rate front and so on. So the problem with public expenditure on areas like social welfare is that once you commit to it, there is a ratcheting up effect because if 12 months down the road, um, the economic environment had seriously deteriorated, we had a little bit of a fiscal crisis. Could you imagine the reaction if government tried to roll back some of the increase in social welfare spending, particularly um, that, that it delivered this year. So, as I say, it's very difficult to roll back on public spending. So that's why we do need to be careful about what we commit to. There are three choices really facing the government with the sort of tax revenue buoyancy we're seeing. One is they just spend all the money on addressing the cost of living crisis, throw money at everybody. Um, including some of that would be one off, but some of it would be permanent in, or semi-permanent increases in social welfare expenditure and so on. Um, a second option would be to invest this money in infrastructure. In other words, in improving the long-term growth potential of the economy. And part of that certainly could be in the education system, particularly the third level education system where there is a funding problem. Um, and the third piece would be, or the third option would be to create a rainy day fund. Because if you accept, and obviously the jury is out on this, but if you accept that the, the gains we're seeing on the corporation tax side at the moment are windfall 
tax revenues, um, meaning that at some stage this will turn around. Um, should you spend on the basis of a tax base that could be transitory? Okay. Um, or do you put the money into a rainy day fund uh, to use for when times inevitably become um, less prosperous? And so that's the sort of debate, but the, the, the sort of political consensus out there at the moment, and this has obviously been driven by a topic we keep talking about, that's the whole populist political um, agenda, but the, the whole political narrative out there at the moment is definitely all of this money should be thrown at the cost of living crisis. No sense whatsoever of taking a more long-term strategic view to what should be done with this money. So it, it's interesting. And Pascal Donahue on September 27th obviously faces some interesting choices. Yeah, I had an interesting exchange with a listener to the to the other hand the other day, and he suggested that he was uh, originally Irish and had moved to the UK in 1996. Very successful chap by all accounts, uh, very well educated, had been to both Trinity, Dublin and Oxford University and had been living in the UK for the past quarter century or so. He's now thinking of moving back to Ireland, principally because of the political and therefore economic situation here in the UK, which as we have discussed many times, thanks to people like Boris Johnson, has deteriorated beyond belief. In his words, the country is being run by complete idiots. The only thing that's really holding him back, he said, was the prospect of a Sinn Féin government in a few years' time, essentially replicating the British experience in a different way. We all do populism different. And that raised the question with me, and and I ask you the the same question, really, is, is Ireland looking right now to be so socially cohesive, so relatively immune from the populist plague, which has infected countries like the United Kingdom and the United States and France and Hungary and lots of other places as well. Ireland, to me, every time I go back, it, it strikes me as being a haven from all of this. But are you just five years behind us? Are you just going down a road as with so many things, um, you, you, you're eventually going to go the way of uh, countries like the United Kingdom and the United States. And my friend, my correspondent is right and that the populist plague hasn't really lapped up on Ireland's shores yet, but it's coming. Boy, boy is it coming. And, uh, and I think this debate that we're having about what to do with these windfall taxes uh, exemplifies that because one of the many, many aspects of populism is the way in which economic policy becomes an infantile debate. And you can see that in the UK at the moment with this Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss shenanigans over becoming the next prime minister, the kind of economic nonsense that they are coming out with on a daily basis to people who do know better, actually, but they are pandering to the populist plague because they believe that they have to and that the last thing that they can do is speak the economic truth. Indeed, the reason why Sunak is losing is that he's not telling the whole truth, but he is telling a little bit of the economic truth and he is being slaughtered in the polls because of it. Uh, We perhaps deserve the leaders that we get and this peculiar electoral system that we have here for for the leader of the Conservative Party is going to throw up uh, an economic Neanderthal if the promises they're making are attempted to be honoured, which which of course I doubt. But But the... Economic debate in Ireland, you put it very well, and you put it in a very adult, grown-up way. It's so refreshing to hear 
an economic debate put in those terms compared to what I have to live through over here. Uh, what should we do with this cash? Should we spend it? Should we save it? And of course, the right answer from an economic point of view is that it should be saved. And that this is the moment. The moment came a long time ago for Ireland to have its, its rainy day fund. Of course, you did have one once upon a time. And then it didn't just rain, it poured during the financial crisis. And the funds. And the, and, and the money was used. That's and the, money, the purpose of a that rainy day fund. That was the purpose. Yeah. And you can, you can argue whether it was used appropriately, you can argue whether it was used well. But the rainstorm came, boy did it come, and the money came in very handy during that time. It was originally set up to pay Ireland's future pension bill. A finance minister called Charlie McCreevy set it up with the intention of putting 1% of Irish GDP into it each year. That's why it existed. It was, it was a far-sighted piece of economic policy. Um, and we, and do, we, do we do those sorts of things anymore? Uh, certainly in the UK, we don't. We, we don't look beyond the next 10 minutes. I worry now that, that the fact that this, this debate, led by um, Michal Martin, I think, who seems to have suggested that this money is just going to be thrown at people in a fairly indiscriminate way. I may be doing him injustice with my interpretation of, of what he said this week. But I suspect there's no chance that it will be saved. I suspect there's no chance that there will be a rainy day fund set up. That would be economically the right thing. I do appreciate that people need help with their energy bills. People at the low income end of the spectrum are going to be in severe trouble this winter. A lot of middle class people are going to be in severe trouble. If you saw some of the figures that were being implied by the Bank of England's projections for UK fuel bills, they've already gone up by about uh, 50 to 70 percent for domestic users already this year. And some estimates, not the Bank of England's, but some private consultancies are saying that at today's gas price, which may or may not be sustained, it could get better, it could get worse, prices from here, already up 70%, are going to double again. Double, Jim. That means that people in January could face one-month energy bills pushing maybe €1,000 for, for an average four-bedroomed house. For one month for gas and electricity, the combined be filled. That's not a forecast. That's that's a, a maybe on the basis of a lot of averages and a lot of price projections. So people are going to need help. That, that's you know you can argue about the economics of, of of the way in which they should be helped, but people are going to need help with that. Otherwise, they're not, they're going to go cold. But Chris, can I just interject? Um, at the end, beginning of July, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath published the summer economic statement where they basically committed to having an overall budgetary package of 6.7 billion on September 27th, 5.7 billion of that spending increases and a further billion in some reduction in the tax burden. So that is a hell of a lot of money. You know, it's a hell of a lot of expenditure. So the debate here over the last couple of days would suggest that government is not going to do anything unless it gets all of this money and just throws it out there. There are already plans in place to spend a lot of money next year. Um, I think it would be nuts to actually increase that amount of expenditure. And it should also be targeted, I totally agree with you, that those that are most affected, that most need this financial assistance, uh, will get it. And, and indeed, that's what happens here. That's what our social welfare system is based on. And, and there are going to be significant increases in social expenditure in the budget. So the notion that as tax revenues continue to get better, that we just up the amount of money we spend, to me, 
is very, very dangerous. But it is the political climate here. And I would fear, actually, in answering your question, that we are five or six years just behind the UK in terms of the populist politics and all that. And I'm not saying that populist politics is a new thing for Ireland. It's not. You know, we've had variations on populist politics going back many years to 1977, for example. Uh, but also even, you know, F Fina Gael, uh, before election campaigns were promising to get rid of the dreaded universal social charge, the USC. Um, they certainly haven't done that. So there always has been populism. It's it's the nature of democratic politics, particularly the diluted form of democratic politics we have in this country with the proportional representation system. Okay, But the, the point is now that um, I would be fearful that the opposition will force government into doing irresponsible things with the public finances. And I think that would be extremely dangerous. So I, I think it's up to all of us to sort of stand up. And we as a society need to ensure that we do not go the way of the UK over the next four or five years. Um, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be really, really worried about that. And it would be my one reservation. I mean, we, we've spoken about this. There is many times there is the notion that this is a bucket case country and economy. Uh, but yet, relative to a lot of our countries, actually, a lot of stuff does work quite well here. We have problems. There will always be problems. You'll never solve them all. But if you think about why you, you ask the question about, you know, is Ireland eventually going to go the way of the United Kingdom? Um, if you look at the international precedent, the answer to that is definitely. You look at what's happening in the United States. You look at what's happening in countries like France. And, and France is typically voted as the number one or two best health service in the world by the World Health Organization. So the French do stuff pretty well on a social front. And yet you're still getting the rise of populist politics in that country. So it's hard to believe that Ireland will actually remain immune from that. And it worries me, I have to say. And for the, I, I followed that interaction you had with the um, listener to our podcast uh, with great interest. And, um, you know, I, I, I would share his reservation that the, the danger is that if he does come back to Ireland, actually Ireland could go the way um, of the UK in a few years. Um, Chris, I, I know we, we need to move on. We've lots of stuff to discuss. There's one thing that I think is worth pointing out as well, and we have spoken about this, and people like Paul Krugman and lots of others, Noah Smith, have been very taxed by this. The fact that there are so many conflicting economic indicators out there at the moment. Um, you know, we've got two successive quarters of negative GDP growth in the United States, which doesn't qualify in the US system as a technical recession, but a slowdown in the economy. And yet, and of course, the Federal Reserve is increasing interest rates aggressively. And yet the labor market continues to be incredibly strong. Yeah, um, we it, had it, numbers out today that were just extraordinary. 528,000 jobs added in the month of July. Twice what was expected. 250,000 was the market expectation. Amazing. And an unemployment rate of 3.5% of the labor force. The last time the unemployment rate was down there was February 2020. Guess when February 2020 was? Just before COVID hit. So the US labor market is back to where it was before 
this massive pandemic shock over the last couple Another of years. Another key element of that, um, which is a pre-COVID thing, is the numbers of people in work. It's not just the unemployment rate. The numbers of people in work are now higher than they were pre-COVID. And there aren't many economies that can say that. Yes, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, moving on to the uh, Bank of England yesterday, uh, the largest rate increase, I think, in, what, 27 years? Yep. Um, half percent added to the base rate, now up at 1.75%. Um, and that was, I, I guess, significant in its own right. But really, what has grabbed the headlines has been the incredibly, pretty cataclysmic analysis that the Bank of England provided um, in its post-interest rate increase commentary. Well, they certainly put the frighteners on me, and I suspect an awful lot of people around the country. The headlines in the newspapers this morning were, were, were scary in the extreme. And what we're talking about is an economy either in or about to, to go into recession and interest rates being hiked as, as we go into recession, interest rates being hiked aggressively, with the Bank of England clearly on the warpath against inflation, it was very interesting that there was a big reaction against something that they said, and it's something that I've also echoed, which is that they blamed a lot of the rise in inflation on international factors in general, and we know what they were, and the rise in natural gas prices in particular. And it speaks to those rises in energy bills that have happened and that are still yet to happen. Really, really scary, terrifying increases in energy bills coming over the next six to 12 months in the UK. They hike interest rates accordingly. Now, superficially, that looks like a serious policy mistake because there's no way that rises in UK interest rates will get natural gas prices down. There is no way that rises in UK interest rates will persuade Vladimir Putin to turn on the gas taps to Nord Stream 1 which is the, the latest, just the latest problem. Of course, what they're trying to do, what they can't really say quite so explicitly as they blame energy prices, is that they are terrified that there is now going to be a wage price spiral, that the next phase of non-energy inflation in the UK will be the classic wage price spiral. And it starts actually more in the public sector than the private sector, because we already have a lot of rail strikes in the UK, and we have the public sector across the board pointing out that nurses, teachers, policemen, doctors are all suffering really big real wage cuts for years and spectacularly so this year. Uh, it's also true in the private sector, of course, that anybody operating there is experiencing real wage cuts. So it's a pretty desperate economic situation. And they are explicitly saying we are going to raise interest rates aggressively into a recession that we are forecasting, that we are expecting to last for the next year or so, at least. And we're going to make that recession worse, actually. We're going to err on that side of, and we will get inflation back down to 2%. Now, good luck with that objective of getting inflation down to 2% if energy prices don't fall. So they are relying on luck or chance circumstances. If they don't go down, then they're not going to meet their inflation target. But that's true of all central banks, actually. Uh, but it's pretty, pretty bleak stuff. And they are talking tough. I believe that they are the 70th central bank this year to raise interest rates by half a point or more or some, some incredible. I didn't realize there were 70 central banks in the world, but apparently the, apparently there are. Um, That's an extraordinary statistic. It's funny. Yesterday, when I was reading the commentary of the Bank of England, um, I was thinking back on the days when you first arrived on these shores of Ireland 
Um, back then, Ireland was just so dependent on the UK economy. Um, and the, the sort of word at the time was, or the, the term to describe that dependence was, when the UK caught a cold, Ireland got the flu. Um, today, it barely registers here the fact that our nearest neighbour um, is in such potential dire economic straits. Um, we roughly have eight, seven, eight percent of our merchandise exports going to the UK market, um, albeit uh, the one of the biggest indigenous sectors, the agri-food sector, probably has, well, it has one of the greatest exposures. There's also uh, the chemical and pharmaceutical industry sells a lot of stuff to the UK as well. But the biggest indigenous would be the agri-food sector. So clearly, um, if... <clears throat> an important export market gets into difficulty, well, it is going to have an impact. But but still, um, we have diversified our economy. We have reduced our dependence on one single market so dramatically over the last 30 years in this country. It's quite extraordinary. And that definitely is one of the benefits of Ireland's commitment to the European Union. Um, and I mean, I, I wouldn't argue for one moment, and I've been very critical of the EU and, and in many different facets over the years. Uh, but I think in general, the membership of the European Union and Ireland's integration into that market has seriously reduced our risk exposure to certain countries. And obviously in this case, I'm talking about the United Kingdom. Um, and so, you know, that's really good. And I'm also kind of wondering for the agri-food sector, Given the supply chain difficulties that the Brexit fiasco is causing in the UK, regardless of what happens to the UK economy, will there still be a significant market in England, particularly for um, Irish food exports? I think there will. Yeah, there always will be a market here. It's just going to be more difficult. This is not an economy that over the next couple of years you want to be integrated with. And I'm not surprised that you're saying uh a big thank you to the gods for saying that the level of integration has shrunk so much, but it hasn't gone to zero. Clearly, it's sectoral, as you say, it's not as economy wide as it was. Uh, but this is going to be a difficult place to operate in. Um, consumers' expenditure is likely to be very restrained by A, inflation in general, and B, the fact that people have got to find money for their energy bills. They're going to cut back on everything else. So discretionary consumer expenditure is, is going to be under threat. And so if you are exporting into that sector here, you are going to struggle. Just getting lorries to and from the UK is going to be a struggle. We've seen all the queues at Dover. That's a real issue that's going to be ongoing. And if anything, next year is going to get worse. Because, um, of course, the way political debate is conducted in this country is that if you say that anything is the fault of Brexit, you risk uh, being summarily arrested for treason and thrown into the Tower of London. It really is getting almost as bad as that. You are not allowed almost to say that anything is the fault of Brexit. But Brexit is hampering the economy, it's hampering trade. And the pinch point that is Dover um, is, is, is a real problem, which will get worse next year because the EU is moving to biometric checks at borders, which means that people not only will have to show their passports and get them stamped, which has caused all the problems this year, they're actually going to have to get out of their cars to be fingerprinted as you like you are going into the United States. So there are real issues there, real issues coming that nobody is willing to admit to, let alone do anything about. You can't do anything about a problem if you deny its existence. 
And if you look at the debate between Truss and Sunak to be the next prime minister, you've got uh, essentially the Boris Johnson continuity candidate, this uh, uh, Truss, likely to be the next prime minister. And she's continuity in all sorts of different ways. But the main one is the fact that there is absolutely no recognition of economic reality or indeed reality of any kind, as far as I can tell. And that if you will something hard enough, if you're engaged in this boosterism, as we call it over here, that is sufficient. And that eventually collides with reality and produces outcomes that are deeply unpleasant. And that has been the case in the UK for the last while. The issues that confront the UK of the energy price hikes that are yet to come, that I mentioned earlier on, have not figured at all in the, the election debate that we're having for the next prime minister. Uh, nobody knows what they intend to do. We know that they believe that there is one policy and one policy alone that will cure uh, all of Britain's ills, and that's tax cuts. But the state of the NHS, the state of all the red wall constituencies, uh, the education system, uh, the border, uh, none of it is figuring. And so we have this fantastical policy debate here in the UK that is driven by the populist plague, but it means that nothing real is ever discussed and it's ever more fantastical. To see people like Rishi Sunak promising constituents in the West Country of, of England and getting applauded for it by promising to abolish solar farms flies in the face of every strategic... Um, environmental and economic imperative facing countries all over the world, not least the UK, that the way forward, of course, is to, um, from a portfolio approach to energy, to have as many different domestic energy sources as possible, including wind and solar. Completely separate discussion, but it's just a small example of the nuttiness of the debate that is here, is that we, we applaud people who say we are never going to build another wind farm and we're going to remove the solar farms that we've got. These people are insane, Jim. They are absolutely insane. I'll Rish, shut up now. Rishi's views on solar farms will go down very well in a little parish in Waterford called Clannay Power, where there's civil war at the moment over a proposed solar farm. Um, what have people have got against them? I have no idea. There are signs around the parish down there saying, don't let solar destroy our community. Um, I just cannot see the logic that a solar farm destroys a community. It's mad stuff. Um, I think what could destroy a community is having a massive dependence on energy imports from an autocratic country. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that is the one lesson we should have learned in the last six months. Chris, I, I have to say, given your absolute abhorrence over the last while on this podcast of Boris Johnson, I cannot possibly see how he could possibly be worse than Liz Truss. Jesus Christ, I've watched interviews with her. It's extraordinary. She's changed her mind on everything. The notion that she could actually become prime minister, I find utterly scary, I have to say. Absolutely, Jim. But this is the way of the UK at the moment, that we have the Boris Johnson continuity candidate. You or I might debate which one is worse but they're both from the same political stable of make things up as you go along, promise the audience whatever they happen to want, make these commitments, renege on them within five minutes. And whether that is a small promise to the electorate or a treaty that you've signed with the European Union doesn't matter. Uh, it's a philosophy, I think, based on a very fundamental notion that nothing matters. And that, that, well, all that matters is 
me getting my hands on the levers of power, but actually doing something constructive with the levers of power, well, why would you bother your ass with that? Another topic that certainly has me very confused over the past week has been Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Um, I, I went and looked again at my atlas just to see, remind myself where Taiwan is. And, and it is quite extraordinary, a tiny island that is so overshadowed by the huge China. Okay, it's, it's, so its geographical position is extraordinary. Uh, but anyway, that, that aside, but it, it just brought home to me, reminded me of the extreme vulnerability of Taiwan to the Chinese threat. But um, Pelosi visiting Taiwan has driven the Chinese absolutely apoplectic. And we've seen um, various displays of um, weapons over the last couple of days in response to that. And ask myself the question, was Pelosi right or not? There's, there's one bit of me that thinks uh, you cannot allow a bully dictate how you behave. So the notion that a senior politician in a democratic country cannot visit another country is extraordinary. Yes, um, it is. And I think that, that the point that you make there is absolutely right. And I'm like you, I've blown with the wind on this one in that I've, I've seen very cogent, well-argued pieces saying that she was absolutely crazy to go and run the risk of, frankly, igniting World War Three, to put it at its most lurid. Um, and I've seen really cogent, well-argued pieces saying that she was absolutely right to do what she did for the reasons that you just suggest, which is that eventually China is determined to go to war over Taiwan. Uh, China might be determined ultimately to go to war over all sorts of things, not least just because it wants to go to war with America. Some people clearly believe that. And if you believe that China is destined ultimately to do to Taiwan, what Vladimir Putin did to Ukraine. If you think that's a given, that we all we don't know is when, it could be tomorrow, it could be in 10 years' time, then what we don't do is what we did with Russia and just accommodate them. And every time they bully us, uh, give in. And I've seen it argued both ways, and I can see both sides of the argument, is that you don't stand up to bullies, but at the same time, you don't want to cause World War Three. So it is very different. I think that ultimately it's the proof of the pudding. I think that there is a pragmatic response to this. And let's see what happens. If this does start World War Three, if she has started the next World War, then clearly she was wrong to go to Taiwan. If it causes China, on the other hand, to have a, a think about its bullying tactics and even delays World War Three, will we ever know? Um, then clearly it was the right thing to do. So I think there's a pragmatic response to your question is what actual, actual rather than theoretical effects her visit actually have. And that will tell us whether she was right to go or not. And I suspect the only answer I can give you at the moment is we don't know whether it was right or wrong. Clearly it was risky from a whole host of perspectives to go. Um, once it became leaked that she was going and China was trying to bully her into not going, if she had then changed her mind, that was a risk in the sense that you are giving in to the bully risk. So these are geopolitics way above my pay grade, Jim. I would say, let's just see what happens. It's done. The effects will be what they will be. And then we will look back historically, at least, if, we, if any of us are still here and say she was right or she was wrong. Yeah. And, and of course, there is the issue that this will further push China and Russia together. Yeah, if China starts supplying mm. weapons to Russia now, for example, which is, I think, a real, real yeah. live question, 
then that answers your question in a particular way. If, she, if, if, this, if this is the catalyst that achieves that effect, because Russia is running out of, of sophisticated weaponry at least, um, then she was wrong to do it. Chris, a question. Windfall taxes on energy companies or not? Kind of, sort of, yes, is my answer. It's, it's always a far more complicated question than the populist nature of the debate. They do look... It does. It is a very bad look. All of these companies making the kind of money that they are. Fossil fuel companies uh, have a bad rep, deservedly so these days for environmental reasons. Um, the first thing to say is that they do have two points in their favour, which is that when oil prices not that long ago were negative during the first phase of COVID, nobody was suggesting that we should subsidise or bail out these companies that were struggling then when the price for their product was actually negative. And oh, but costs- Chris, when the price of their product was actually negative, electricity bills, energy bills were still, they didn't come back very much. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. What we're talking about is windfall taxes on certain types of companies. And there are various types of companies in the supply chain of energy. The people that are making the most money are the ones that actually are digging or pumping the oil and gas out of places like the North Sea or Texas and other non-Russian energy deposits. Um, that other kinds of companies like um, wind and solar are benefiting as well for different reasons. And so it depends on which sector you're talking about, the kind of responses that you, you're making. They're all getting windfalls and windfalls should be taxed. Um, most economic th- taxation theory would point you in that direction. And they are taxed. Whatever your rate of corporation tax is, they, they, they are taxed. And the more profit you make, the more tax you pay. The The idea that you should suddenly put a windfall tax on these companies because the oil price has gone up a lot and their costs of production haven't gone up, so therefore these are windfall profits, isn't a great idea um, for, the re- for the second reason that is in their favour, is that sudden unpredictable lurches in taxation do deter investment. That's a theoretical principle of taxation. It doesn't work for the oil companies at the moment because they're giving most of this money back to their shareholders. They're not investing it. So in practical terms, that theoretical principle doesn't apply in this case. The right way to construct taxation of oil companies is to do it in advance in a predictable way, which says that if you achieve a certain return on capital of X, you'll be taxed at this rate. If the price of energy goes above a certain level that, such that your return on capital is much greater than that, then your tax rate will go from 20 to 40 to 60%. So it, they, I think windfall taxes are right on these companies, given their strategic and other forms of significance. But to, to do it out of the blue is always the most cack-handed way of doing it. And the way you should, you should do it, and I think Canada does it this way in, in particular, and I think other countries as well, is that you create a taxation regime that the companies know about in advance and that if the oil price goes above $100, then their tax rate goes up, for example. That's the way to do it. Too late. That's shutting the stable door after this particular horse has bolted. So I think the balance of the argument is, yes, there should be windfall taxes on these companies. And that would include um, solar and wind companies, actually. It's it's the wrong way to put windfall taxes on, but um, their costs of production have not changed one iota uh, from solar or wind. But the ch- prices they are able to charge um, have gone up exponentially. So uh, they too should be subjected to tax. But the whole taxation of these energy companies, wherever they are in the pipeline, does need reform. Chris, 42 minutes has to be a record. Uh, Listen, great talking to you today. Uh, Lots of topics discussed. 
all deserved a hell of a lot more attention than we were able to give them. But uh, it's good to get this stuff out there. Um, it's yeah. good to create a debate. So listen, have a great weekend. And um, I look forward to talking to you next week. Take it easy, Jim. Great chat. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.